I realize that Father's Day uh, has a range of emotions. When you have this many people in a room, you have people who are celebrating dads who did what they were supposed to do. You have uh, people grieving dads that they have lost. You have people grieving dads who didn't do what they were supposed to do, that had patterns of behavior that were destructive, that maybe we grew up to repeat, or uh, maybe we missed out on the approval that we thought we were supposed to get from our fathers, so then we seek approval in places and from people that we shouldn't seek it from. Uh, So there's a whole range of emotions from that. But what I need to tell every single one of you in here today is that there is a God in heaven who loves you and he has given his approval to you. Mm. And I want to say this to dads. It's something that I am learning and I keep learning uh, that the secret to me being a good dad is first me being a good son. And that comes from letting my father in heaven redefine what fatherhood is and what sonship is. And it is something that is constantly, uh, the world seems like it's trying to counter-program in the ways that it defines masculinity. And Jesus, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, shows us really what it means to be a human and a good human. And uh, I appreciate Ben's willingness to tell that story because it's not an easy story to tell. But because he learned how to be a good son, we say this, uh, he's a chip off the old block. If you're a chip off the old block of your father in heaven and, and he is the kind of God that offers forgiveness, then guess what? You offer forgiveness. And when Ben offered forgiveness, it opened up for him the possibility to let go of anger that was destructive to his relationships, the people that he loved. And now he is equipped to love and care for his daughter and become the father that he wants her to have. So uh, Ben is in this room. Would you guys put your hands together one last time to cheer Ben on and say thank you. Speaking of growing up, most of us uh, have grown up hearing the phrase, money won't make you happy. And if we're honest, when I hear that phrase, there's a small part of me that wants to say, ah, try me, <laughs> right? Well, the famous philosopher Jim Carrey said, I, hope, I wish that everyone could grow up and have all the money, make their dreams come true, and realize that it is not the answer, that it is not the, the, the path to happiness and to success. So most of us, when we think about money and happiness, we think the key word is more, But what we know and what the teachings of Jesus say all through the New Testament is that our happiness comes from managed. So when we manage our money well, and money is obviously not the only source of happiness, but if you keep treating money as if more is going to make you happy, you will be left unhappy. Uh, And so one of the marks of the Christian faith is that we are a people. The church is a generous And so I invite you as a a part of our Southbrook community to participate in generosity. We do this through push pay. And we uh, are saying, I am not the manager of my money. That's what we do when we we participate in generosity. So do that with us. Uh, I've been around the church. I grew up in the church. If you grew up in the church, maybe you've heard this phrase, God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. Are there any hands? Have Have you heard this? A few people in the front row. That's the guilty people, everybody. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but but the, the thing that that implies is that happiness 
and following God and, and being Christ-like, that those two things are mutually exclusive, that you can't have one and have the other. And I want to show you why I believe that it is not true. So Hebrews 1.9, read this with me. It says, your God has set you, the subject here is Jesus, above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. That means that Jesus was quite possibly one of the happiest people who ever lived. And I'll tell you a little bit more about why I believe that. But first, I think it's really fascinating that Jesus is surrounded by a crowd and for his most famous sermon, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And the phrase that he chooses to relate to people and to help them is blessed are those. And most new American translations of the Bible say happy are those. Jesus knew that humanity and its desire for happiness is united. But in its understanding of how it seeks that happiness, it is radically divided. He said, on that hillside, I know how to connect to you. I know how to help you. I want to talk to you about happiness. Most people don't know what makes them happy. That might be a surprise to you. Uh, in the era that we live in uh, of pursuing life, liberty, and happiness, uh, is that we think we know our way to happiness, and it's those things. Here's how you know that you're not happy, is if you keep pursuing all those things and you still feel unsatisfied. I would tell you that you don't know what it means to be happy, but I do think Jesus knows how to get us there. And if you think that it's strange or maybe even offensive for me to tell you that I don't think you're happy or you don't know how to be happy, just think for one moment. Anytime that you open up your phone, jump online, turn on the radio, you are hearing from some person that you've never met, somewhere you've never been, and they're telling you, buy this product, get this thing, and I will show you happiness. We hear it all of the time. And I have fallen for that, if not one time, a hundred times, this secret of happiness. In John 10.10, 10, we read, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The context around this passage is that the thief is not only the adversary, it's not only Satan, it's any being that comes to take life. So let me ask you this question. Are you the person or a being or possibly the thief that has the most power in your life of any other being to take away your happiness? I would argue yes. And here's why. Because you bought it, you leased it, you ate it, you drank it, you dated it. Some of you even married it. <laughs> so when you think over the course of your life, however long that is at this moment, the level of unhappiness that you've experienced you are, the, you are the common denominator of all of that unhappiness. You were there for your unhappiness. And I think that we def defeat ourselves in our pursuit of happiness because of our confusion around these two ideas. Check out the screen with me. We have pleasure and happiness. Pleasure and happiness. So when you put pleasure over happiness, then you are going to undermine your own happiness. But before we get any further into this whole pleasure uh, conversation, I have to tell you that pleasure is not wrong. God created pleasure. God created sex 
Think about him at the end of the creation story. Uh, he looks over to the angels. He goes, oh, this humanity thing, I got something special for them. And the angels are like, what? And you just wouldn't understand. <laughs> Imagine Jesus, he's about to kick off uh, his ministry. And the disciples and Jesus' mother are there. And they say, hey, how, how should we kick this off? Do you think we should heal somebody? Nah, let's make wine. <laughs> Ladies, think about this. Uh, God made feet. You're not, you're not following me. What do you put on your feet? Shoes. Ladies, God made pleasure. And ple- pleasure in- inherently isn't wrong, but this is what happens if we prioritize our pursuit of happiness by pleasure first, you will undermine your own happiness. I want to look in Romans 6.16. Paul says, you know well enough. That, and basically he's saying, duh. I don't need to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. From your own experience that there are some acts of freedom that destroy your freedom. Offer yourselves to sin, for instance, and it's your last free act. You say to Paul the Apostle, I'm not, I'm not enslaved by my pursuit of pleasure. And he would say, ha, that's exactly what I'm trying to show you, is that your pursuit, you thinking that you can do whatever you want to do with whoever you want to do, how you want to do it, is a choice. Before you know it, you've rep- repeated over and over your pursuit of that pleasure to the point that you don't even know that you're choosing it anymore. It's choosing you, and it's in control of you, and you become prisoned by your pleasure. And this works from, I just had a half glass, to now I need a whole glass, to three glasses, to I forgot what I did last night. Is there a pleasure that is undermining your happiness? Paul the Apostle then goes on to say, or, I have this, offer yourselves to the ways of God and the freedom never quits. So this is restriction when you offer yourself to the way of God. But think of it like this. Every time that you get on the interstate, you're subscribing to a speed limit. A speed limit that provides boundaries for everyone to enjoy, to have life, to experience moving about the world. And it's a restriction that leads to life. All your lives, you've let sin tell you what to do, but thank God you've started listening to a new master, one whose commands set you free to live openly in his freedom. The original way that Jesus said it is, I have come that you would have life and have it to the full. So the dilemma is not pleasure. The dilemma is the issue of priority. Because I believe, and I believe that Jesus would tell us this, that happiness ultimately, if we pursue happiness first, it ultimately leads to happiness and also pleasure. So let's say, just for the sake of conversation, that we all agree, okay, yeah, pleasure's not bad, pleasure's good, but when we make pleasure our master, things become destructive. So I'm going to pursue happiness and happiness the way that God has it offered. Because, and here's the deal. When you say, I'm going to pursue happiness the way that God says I'm going to, I should pursue happiness, you are saying that you are not all you need, that you are not the source of your happiness. It doesn't matter if you get yourself exactly the way you want with the right job, the right income, the right size, the right car, the right house, the right spouse, you still won't be happy. But I'm going to tell you something very counterintuitive. 
And some of you, when I say this, you're going to believe me and you're going to say, yeah, I've done that and I know that's true. And then others of you, when I say this is the way to happiness, you're going to scoff for a minute and you're going to say, no, I've been too busy pursuing pleasure to even test and find out if this thing works. And this is what I'm going to tell you. You can serve your way to happiness. You can serve your way to happiness. And if you don't believe me, you can hop on your computer later this afternoon and check out some research. I'm going sh- to share just a little bit of research with you uh, from a psychiatrist and professor at, at Harvard. Uh, his name is Robert Wallinger, and he cross-analyzed multiple studies on the satisfaction and happiness of humans. Uh, and he, what he did is he cross-analyzed studies that had preceded him in life. So he used 79 or studies over 79 years that were looking at the journey of people's 724 people's lives. And this is what uh, he wrote at the end of his research. The surprising finding is that our relationships have a deep effect on our happiness and even our health. This is interesting. He says the top three happiest jobs, caring for others, teaching others, and protecting others. And they discovered that it didn't matter what level of income you had, as long as you could feed yourself, pay your bills, and live indoors, you would be happy. And they even discovered that serving with a bad attitude can have good results. So sign up your spouse if you have to. All of these studies come to the same conclusion that one of the best things that you can do for yourself is not focus on yourself. And how is it that acting selflessly can make me happier? Or let's put it this way. How can emptying myself, how can emptying myself leave me feeling so full? You've heard the words of Jesus that the first will be last and the last will be first. And what he's saying there is if you are too big to serve, then you are too small to experience the goodness that I have on offer for you. Selfishness is not natural, or it is natural, but it's not by design. Selfishness is natural, but it's not by design. So I want to contrast two different pursuits of happiness. We're going back to Paul the Apostle again. In Galatians 5, he he talks about the acts of the flesh. So the acts of the flesh are, if you got to do whatever you wanted to do with whoever you wanted to do it with, whenever, and no one would ever find out, this, is, this, this list is what would characterize your life. And he says that your choices would be sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions of envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will not experience the happiness that God has to offer you. Because when you put pleasure above happiness, what happens is selfishness and what happens is sin. Sin, this idea, it's as old as the Old Testament. It means when you miss the mark. So let's say that God designed us to have relationships that work a certain way. There's a target. And when we don't measure up to that target, we have missed the mark. Righteousness is a fancy way of saying right relationships. So when we pursue the acts of the flesh, everything that we think we can offer ourselves and the world can offer ourselves, we will be left missing out. We will not inherit the kingdom of God. Have you ever said, if I ever, I wouldn't be able to live with myself? 
That's a common phrase that we say around here in life all the time. If I did this, I couldn't live with myself. So what happens is sin not only separates us from other people because we've offended them, but it separates us from ourselves, and it ultimately separates us from God. Let me give you an example. If, if you were to hurt my daughter, and then we were to pass each other, and you said, hey, sorry about that thing with your daughter, but we're still cool, right? It's just your daughter. No, we're not cool. You just hurt my daughter. And the same thing goes like this. If I hurt you, and God loves you, then when I hurt you, I also hurt God. Do you see how interconnected this, this pursuit of righteousness, having right relationships works. So then Paul said, if, if you say I'm not going to pursue the acts of the flesh, I'm not going to pursue pleasure over happiness, instead I'm going to pursue the design that God has given me through the fruits of the Spirit. This is what it looks like. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. We all know that these things sound attractive. And then we get to this last line, and we're like, what is going on? Nobody talks like this. What Paul is saying is that when all of these things are characterizing you and they're characterizing me, that there is no need for laws. Imagine a, a community where the police officer's job, their only job is to direct traffic because at a four-way stop, everybody's just trying to let the next person go, and in order to keep traffic moving, the police are saying, it's your turn, go. I think that is one of the most brilliant expressions in all of ancient literature. Against such things, there is no law. And so when I ask you that if you had a life that was characterized by the fruits of the Spirit, if you would be happy, the reason why you intuitively know that that would make you happy if your family acted like that, if your friends, if you acted like that, is because selfishness is natural, but it's not by design. And the design for us, the design is divine. It's a divine design. You were designed to live in that kind of community. You were designed to contribute to that kind of community. Let me ask you a different question when we talk about the pursuit of happiness. How do we measure the value of a life? So imagine you're at a funeral and someone stands up to talk about another person. And they, they say, man, this guy made such an extraordinary contribution to society. He hit on every woman he passed. He was shouting all the time. He was angry. He wanted what everybody else had. And when he wasn't selfish and drinking, he was sleeping. We are all inspired by his life. <laughs> we don't talk about any of these things at a funeral because we know that they are not contributing value. They're only consumptive. You cannot consume acquire or exercise your way to happiness. Pleasure, when we pursue pleasure first, it's always at somebody else's expense. And no one, no one that is happy, anyone that you've identified in your life as this is a happy, happy person, you don't have to look very hard at what makes them happy. Sure, you might not want their car, you might not want their dress size, you might not want their spouse or their bank account, but what you might want is something different. So the value of a life is always measured by how much, it was, how much of it was given away. Laura Buffington said, as we wrapped up our service, talking about death and its relation to the existence or non-existence of God, she said this remarkable thing. She said, why don't we live lives that are worth grieving when we're gone? 
We think to ourselves, that was a great man or that was a great woman. And if you want to be happy, then you have to figure out how to give your life away. After all, isn't this what we know uh, characterizes good fathers, good mothers? That the best fathers are selfless fathers. Now, I have seen a lot of men confuse this for my selflessness is my job and I provide for my family. But your selflessness can also be, I'm saying no to that job or no to those extra hours because I want to say yes to being with my kid right now. There are tons of selfless things a father does, and I just want to list a couple of them. They give up time, money, sleep, careers, and being cool. <laughs> that is what we give up. So listen, listen to me. Uh, there, there's a great analogy that we can look at from a geographical level. Uh, most of you are familiar with a sea called the Dead Sea. And in this sea, the, the salt content is so high because it sits at the lowest point of the earth. There are tons of streams flowing into this sea. Yet as we speak, there are people that are pumping more water into the Dead Sea because the Dead Sea is dying. And get this, there's, they can't figure out where the water's going. They don't see any other streams, any other seas that are leaching the water from this sea. And only 87 miles north of the Dead Sea is another sea, and it's called the Sea of Galilee. And it's a sea that has a vibrant ecosystem with tons of wildlife, people fishing and skiing and enjoying the lake. And that sea has streams leaving it left and right. How does it make sense to us that there could be a sea that is constantly giving its one resource, its water, and it's full and then the Dead Sea is constantly only taking it, it's only consuming, and yet it is still dying. This is the principles of life. There's an amazing organization I think probably everyone in this room is familiar with. It's called AA. It's the Worldwide Fellowship of People Pursuing Sobriety. And it is spread around the globe. It boasts over 2 million members, 180 nations. There's, I think, 118,000 groups that are registered, and there's probably even more than that that exist. This is fascinating. AA was always found to be more effective, nearly always found to be more effective than psychotherapy. It's known for its 12 steps of recovery. But what you might know is, not know is that 11 of those steps are all about the person trying to fi get fixed and to become sober. Any group leader of AA would tell you that if you don't do the 12th last and most important step, that that person will relapse. The last step of AA is to sponsor someone to come, become sober just like you did. So you could go through all 11 steps, become the most sober person that you can be, but if you don't give it up and try and help another person, if you don't become selfless enough to serve another person, you will relapse. That is the strongest correlation. Step number 12, between a person who will live sober, do the best thing they can do for themselves, or not. The point is that you were designed by God, the giver of life. You were designed by the giver of life to give your life away. That is the counterintuitive promise that Jesus has on offer when he talks about happiness. Now, the last thing that I'm going to say uh, before we wrap up is that if, let's say, you're, you're bought in. You say, yeah, I want, I want to pursue a lifestyle like that. If you want Jesus' life, 
You have to live his lifestyle. So I'm going to serve. It doesn't happen on accident. You're not going to wake up 10 years from now and go, oh my gosh, I accidentally gave 4,000 hours of community service. It won't, it won't happen. What you do for things you care about is you systematize. You have to find a systematic way to serve. So the same way that you set an alarm clock to wake up every day, the same way that you have a calendar and a schedule to remind you to pick up the kids after work, the same way that you create budgets and systems to, so that way you can always pay your bills, you have to become systematic with your serving. Now, there are tons of awesome nonprofits, and you, and you can uh, go and support them and learn about uh, all of the benefits of, of selflessly serving. We uh, care so much about support and service around here at Southbrook that we don't want to leave it up to chance either. Uh, this greatly what um, caused us to start City Lights, so many other ministries like uh, Southbrook Men, Southbrook Women, opportunities for you to serve with Southbrook kids or to facilitate here. Uh, the, you know, the, the lighthouse that Southbrook maybe has been for you is you can help keep the lights on for other people. I, in the past six months, have recently joined a men's group. And uh, until then, I have operated out of a sense that I am doing good, I don't need help. And I haven't participated in a men's group for years. I've worked here for 10 years. Six months ago, I joined a men's group and I have experienced some of the most impactful relationships with men like me, going through the same struggles like me of fatherhood, being a son, trying to figure out how to, how to live a life characterized by the fruits of the Spirit. Um, and don't get me wrong, they haven't, they haven't made me perfect, but what they've done and what I hope that I've contributed to them in service and support is say, hey, you're not alone. But also keep looking at this target because Jesus, he set the bar for the lifestyles that we must live to have the life that is filled with the gospel, that, that life that he has given us that is full. And before I wrap up, I want to I read one thing to you from a guy named Max Licato, he says that the media tells us happiness happens when we retire, when we aspire to have more, when we park a new car in our driveway or have new clothing in our closet. Happiness happens when we lose weight, get the date, find the mate. That's what we keep hearing. So it takes a full court press to stand against that and follow the side door to happiness that Jesus talks about, that counterintuitive door. And that's why I focused on how happiness happens on the one another verses. You re might remember last summer we did the One Light series, which is about all the 50-some the one another's of serve one another, love one another, carry one another burdens, forgive one another. He says, if we as Christians can be known as the happiest people in the city, not necessarily the people that have it all figured out, or the holiest people in the city, I think only heaven can imagine the great things that we would accomplish. And I, I think it would be really awesome if we could make Dayton not have to imagine what it's like when a community, when the church becomes selfless, serving and supporting one another. I, uh, I'm going to give you two really easy 
pathways to pursue serving and support. Leah Sparling, City Lights Director, is out in the atrium at the City Lights map. She is ready to go to sign people up for serving for the Americana Festival. And an awesome event on July 5th. Tons of different roles and ways for, for you to plug in uh, and for you to be able to say, you know what, here's a day when everyone else is consuming, but I'm going to serve. If, if what I just described to you from my men's group is interesting to you, you need to talk to Ryan Massey, Frank Crockett, Nicole, Dana, plenty of women and men who are ready to plug you in and show you that there, are, there is, is community that is full of life. It is no dead sea, it is the Sea of Galilee. Now, in celebrating Father's Day, uh, and I've told you all the ways not to consume your way to happiness, I want to promote some food trucks. But the, the point of this is not what you're celebrating. It's, it's who you are celebrating as you consume with. And so uh, if you want these food trucks to come back, we need you to support them and enjoy them. It's called Mama's Boys, Salty Dog, Cumberland Corn, Kettle Corn, and The Cone. Now, what's really cool about The Cone is if you go out to the information center and go see Mike Roop and his team and ask for a ticket. All dads get free tickets for ice cream cones. So you get your, get your ticket and head back out there. I don't think uh, Father's Day gets any better. And then uh, lastly, uh, while you're enjoying the treats uh, and hopefully enjoying some dad rock, some 70s and 80s tunes played by the band outside, uh, if your dad is a rock star, we want you to go over to the photo op and celebrate just how cool he used to be. Okay. <laughs> I'm quickly losing my coolness, and that's okay. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to close. God, I thank you for the way that uh, you don't expect us to discover happiness through the just consumption, but you overtly share that the first will be last, and the last will be first, that we this counterintuitive, that when we give our life away, we were designed by the, 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 the designer of life that when we give our life away, we find it. Help us discover and show the rest of the world that you have come, that we would have life and have it to the full, and that is through service and support we give ourselves away. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and everybody said, amen. amen. Happy Father's Day. We'll see you next week for beauty.